Oh, oh. <clears throat> there it goes. There it goes. All right, mic check. I think it's working. Had some weird tech difficulties this morning. I think I have everything working. But if things go completely haywire, uh, don't be surprised. It is Friday. This is Just Human, number 232, 34. 34, yes, 34. My wife just texted me, and she wrote together. And I typically read whatever I... I say whatever I'm reading at the time. Okay, writing back okie dokie. There we go. All right. Coordinating for child pickup right as the show starts. All right, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. It's been a wild start to 2024. I told you, like, we were talking last week about how, like, me and BB last Sunday were talking about how we're looking forward to 2024 and we think it's going to be a, a wild one and it's going to be a great and historic year. And boy, howdy, has it been in the first week? It's been wild. Um, I, I did not expect a set of Epstein files to be made public this week and we didn't get one we got two and so much more um oh i forgot i was going to grab my i love superseding indictments bumper sticker i had um a um someone gifted it to me at uh i think it was at threadfest in dallas and i'm trying to remember who it was but they gifted me a i heart superseding indictments bumper sticker and it's either on my shelf over there or i've got it in a book to, you know, keep it flat and protect it. Um, so, <laughs> oh, it's perfect right now because I've, I love superseding indictments and two, two fantastic ones have dropped. It was, it was Buster Lou. Thank you very much in Arizona. Thank you, Buster Lou. I have it. It says I have it in a protected spot right now. So nothing happens to it. Um, so yeah, what a week, uh, this morning, um, we are going to dab into Epstein stuff, but not from the angle of going through the documents. Um, Technofog is doing a fantastic job. <clears throat> and I would very much like to direct everybody to Technofog when it comes, <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes to going through the Epstein stuff. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, because he does a fantastic job with, uh, little to no spin whatsoever about it and he's a he's aware of the clickbait that is out there around epstein and maxwell stuff of which there is a ton so i i would like to direct everybody to technofog he's great on this particular topic we did go over some of this stuff on the wednesday power hour but of course it dropped right before the power hour starts we didn't go through all of it but um I would also recommend that if people are going to go through it uh, themselves, which I think is a great idea, just keep in mind that you're you need to go through the to the direct source documents and you need to keep in mind what they actually are. Some of them are depositions of Maxwell. Some are depositions from uh, various victims. Um, there's a variety of documents that are coming out, all related to these these older cases that were sealed. And it's great stuff, but there's a ton of clickbait. There's a ton of fake screenshots of transcripts that are going around um, that are polluting the conversation, which I think that is the purpose of it, is that uh, there are people who are doing it just because they're sharing viral stuff that gets clicks, such as Stephen Hawking and midgets. Um, 
no, that's not in the transcripts that I have seen at all. Um, and so I think people do it for clicks, but then there's also the angle that I think people do it because, uh, it's a poison pill. And I've talked about this many times and it's something that I feel very strongly about, uh, that because we want to have a truth movement or actually let me, um, phrase it this way. When you have a, a group of people who are trying to uncover the truth and put good, solid research and facts out, the best way to corrupt that is to feed them mis, dis, and malinformation so that they ruin their own credibility. So let's say you wanted to screw up my reporting and research on Durham, right? Let's say you were a nefarious person and you didn't like the research that I was doing on the Durham report and Durham cases and such. Well, one way you could try and corrupt and damage my credibility and uh, whatnot, interrupt me, is to feed me erroneous information about Durham and the people involved in those cases. So you could send me all sorts of stuff about Danchenko and Bruce Orr and Christopher Steele that was completely untrue or was half true, or would lead me in the wrong direction. And then I would eventually end up, it would eventually end up damaging my credibility. Um, it could damage the number of people who read my stuff or watch my videos. Um, it could also discourage me from doing more research because I got so many things wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when, in other words, I, I, the way I like to think of it is, um, since we're in an information war, and a persuasion war, which is something also to keep in mind. Uh, the information itself doesn't can't do the work on its own. It has to have persuasive value to it. The best way, I think, to interdict the signal, to block the signal, to corrupt the signal of good information that we're trying to put out is to counter that signal with bad signal that blocks it, that acts as an electronic countermeasure that uh, either blocks it or corrupts it. Or misdirects it. So, and I think that the Epstein Maxwell topic is one where that happens a whole, whole lot. But there is something specific I do want to talk about with relation to Epstein, and that is, um, that is Trump. That's where I want to go. Um, and then I promised we would talk about. I promised we would talk about Ed Meese and his filing with the Supreme, with, well, with Supreme Court, but it's now been put into the D.C. Appeals Court for Trump's uh, hearing next week. And the court has asked the parties to be aware of Ed Meese's brief and to be prepared to answer questions about it. And also the American Oversight filing and the filing that's from a bunch of bushies. Um, I want to go through Ed Meese's brief. I'm struggling. The reason I was getting that uh, message from my wife about child pickup is trying to figure out who's going to pick up um, our toddler today for, at noon. And I'm not sure I have time to go through all of Ed Meese's brief, but I, what I want to do is take a look at it and then compare Jack Smith's appointment to the appointments of other recent special counsels uh, so we can see what it is he's getting at. Um, the other thing I want to do is I want to look at uh, Miles Guo. And the superseding indictment that came out um, in regards to him. So with that said, those are the things that are before us this morning. And um, 
Storm Shelter, I 100% agree with that. I like that comment a lot. I'm going to read that. Storm Shelter says, People on our side pushing clickbait and not doing their due diligence of research is just as harmful as the MSM twisting narratives. 100% agree, and thank you for the compliment. Felicia, thank you very much. I appreciate that Rumble rant. It is my pleasure. Also, Bear, Thank you. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you. That's very generous. I appreciate that. Um, thank you. Yeah, Miss Mo. Good morning. And I did see that story about uh, how someone named in Durham's report um, is on Jack Smith's special counsel. And that person was not mentioned favorably in uh, Durham's report. So with all that said, um, and good morning, Karma and Jay and Emerson and Mermaid. Music and Fiction, Coffee Gal, DZ Dork, One Son, Irish Jim. Good morning, everyone. Um, Colorado Granny and Grana Smith, thank you. Felony. Grana Smith, yeah, so I can totally see how that Stephen Hawking thing was a joke. When I first read it, I saw it as a meme joke. But people were sharing it around seriously. And it wasn't the only one. That was just uh, one of the most viral ones. And um, I get it. I get it. But uh, it's just, yeah, be careful. And I know you don't disagree with that. So, all right. As we get started, let's go right here. So, real quick, if you're interested in supporting the show, you can, of course, share it. That's a great way to support the show is to share it around. There is a podcast version of it on my Substack that's usually ready um, a couple hours after the show ends at noon. Uh, so, about 2 p.m. or 3 p.m., I send out the podcast version of the show, which you can listen to. Um, through the Substack app um, on the Substack website, or you can set it up to feed to your favorite podcast player. Um, but my Substack is the number one way to support me because um, 90% of whatever subscri subscription you choose ends up coming to me. Substack, Substack takes a very small cut. And Substack right now is under attack, I should mention. Uh, Substack um, is under attack by leftist groups who are trying to get people to leave. Um, they're trying to get major authors to leave the site because of content on it that they dis find disagreeable. And Substack is saying, no, we're not going to center the content um, of the material that is on our website, even though we find it distasteful, um, etc., even racist. Um, we're not going to censor. We're not going to censor the authors who are on Substack. If people don't like what they write on Substack, they sh they won't subscribe. And I I really I really appreciate that about Substack. Um, so I, if you're interested, Substack is a great is a great way to uh, follow the show. If you especially if you like podcast versions of the show. Um, and also, if you're just looking for a way, if you're just being a generous person, you're looking for a way to support what I do, Substack subscriptions are basically the best option, in, in my opinion, anyway. But that said, everything on my Substack is free. So you can sign up for it. You don't have to get a subscription. You can sign up for it free. Everything on there is free and always will be. You should also know that since Rumble has added playlist, I'm now... I now have a Durham report playlist for if you're a real nerd and you just want to listen to me read the report from last summer. And then I also have a clips playlist where I'm each time I do a show, I'm taking the clips and it's, I used to put it on its own channel because they're, it was kind of messy. Now I'm putting them all in a clips playlist. So 
if you're looking for clips of the show to share with friends, or there's some topic that I cover that you in particular you want to listen to or catch, you don't have time for the entire show, go to the clip section. That's where you'll find it. Um, also, if you have a request for a clip, um, feel free to reach out to me and say, hey, this segment from your show on such and such day, I would appreciate it if you made a clip of it and uploaded it. And I will do my best to do that. All right, now beyond that, if you want to buy me a cup of coffee, ko-fi.com is a great place. And um, <clears throat> you can leave a message there when you buy a cup of coffee. And uh, I check all those messages out, and I really appreciate it. You guys are really kind. Another way to support the show is to click this affiliate link for Benson Honey Farms and get yourself some delicious, raw, unpasteurized, just beautiful, delicious honey from a wonderful family who I have met. And they are awesome. And Mo is in chat right now. They have wonderful products. And they also have, besides honey, which definitely is the primary goodness over there. It's awesome. The soap is excellent. The candy is super addictive. I do recommend it, but be prepared to be addicted. Just buy the big bag. And they have a car freshener, an air, a car freshener like scent thing. And it smells really good. And it's kind of weird that my face is on it, but it smells good. It gets the job done. I really like it. So that's another way to support. You make use that affiliate link. Whatever you spend over there, they kick a couple dollars my way. Same setup with bootleg. You click this link and then you go over there, buy yourself some chili or some sauce or some seasoning, dry rub, etc. I use their products all the time as I cook and everything from there is delicious. Right now is a great time to get some chili. Their chili is amazing. It's a little bit on the sweet side, although they do have like spicy um, they have a hot version of it, right? But I just want to tell you, it's a little bit on the sweet side as far as like sweet tomato type sweetness, uh, not like tons of sugar, but like, man, it's good. It is such, it is, it is one of the, it might be my favorite chili ever. It is so delicious. You just buy this, add half a pound to a pound of ground beef to it, stew it up, warm it up. And, oh, it's so good. Manly can also we're past Christmas, but, um, Valentine's day is coming up. And if you forgot to get your man, a manly gift, boom, head on over to manly cans. Um, use that affiliate link. You make a purchase over here. They send a couple dollars my way. This is the one I actually have is this can right here. It's like the beard man can or the dapper man can. It's one or the other. Uh, but I have this, these brushes and combs and beard oil. And I like them quite a bit. It's good stuff. And then I have some merch and also a Venmo link. So those are the ways to support the show. It is a user-supported show. You guys make this happen. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for all your support. Okay. Okay. Let's... Let's talk about Epstein and Trump. So I want to put something to bed. Um, I want to, that's a, that's a faux pas right there. Let me start over. That's a faux pas. Epstein files have come out and a, a batch of them. There's going to be many more. And the media's angle is, and has always been that anytime Epstein is mentioned, they want to make sure and bring up Trump too, because there was a connection a uh, um, 
for a time there was some sort of a relationship, and we're going to get into that, between Trump and Epstein. And they love to mischaracterize that um, and equate it to the relationship that Epstein had with, say, Bill Clinton. So they're, that's the reason they're doing it up, because it's like they know what's coming with Epstein. They, they're aware of who Epstein was and how evil and sick his enterprise, his operation was. And they are aware that some of their favorite people, including Bill Clinton and celebrities and very powerful billionaires, um, partook in Epstein's enterprise. And um, they know that Trump did not, but still they know that there is a connection there. So they want to make sure that they always bring Trump up in connection to Epstein as a way to obfuscate or um, draw some sort of equivalency between Trump's relationship with Epstein and Clinton, uh, Black, uh, Brunel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I thought today what we would do is, one, I'm going to read this post that I wrote. And um, I wish I had taken my time writing it, honestly, because it's gotten, it's gone, it's been more popular than I realized it would be. And I kind of wish I had taken my time to write it a bit better and include a little bit more information. But one thing I did do in this post is I have a bunch of citations. So I thought it would be good today to not just read my, my prose right here, but to go through the citations and show you uh, what backs up the, the post that I made right here, uh, what backs up what I said here. So... As I said, the release of new Epstein-Maxwell-related documents has refreshed allegations that Trump was somehow complicit in the blackmailing enterprise that they ran. This could not possibly be more untrue. Though some of the transcripts that mention Trump, Mar-a-Lago, and the Atlantic City Casino are newly public, it was previously known and recently testified to in the Maxwell trial that Epstein Maxwell targeted Mar-a-Lago and that one of the girls in that trial, the pseudonym she used was Jane, was taken there in 1994. It was also previously known that Trump chartered one of Epstein's planes to take him from Florida to New Jersey. This was testified to by the pilot when he took the witness stand in Maxwell's trial. However, what I would have included here, guys, I wish I could go back and rewrite it, is that there are no allegations by any of the victims that Trump ever abused them or even received or asked for or received a massage from them. None at all. And there is no testimony that Epstein was on the plane or that any of the victims were on the plane which Trump took. He chartered it because he needed a private plane, and Epstein had one available sitting at the airport. Back to the post. However, what is key here is that Epstein messed up by putting himself on Trump's radar. Here's how. The Atlantic City Hotel was a trap for criminals from day one. The FBI and the Trump Organization coordinated during the pre-construction phase to set it up as such. Mar-a-Lago is likely similarly set up. Epstein slash Maxwell's targeting of Mar-a-Lago employees and guests later caused Trump to ban them from the property in 2008, shortly before Epstein pleaded guilty. Furthermore, and perhaps more significantly as it concerns these new documents, the very attorney who helped get them unsealed says that Trump was the only person 
who picked up the phone and was eager to help him investigate Epstein and Maxwell. And that was back in 2009. Do you know of any other acquaintances or clients of Epstein who were eager to help any investigator or journalist who was looking into Epstein or Maxwell? I don't. I haven't come across any. So when you include this information above, and there are citations below, which I am going to go through, Epstein and Maxwell were walking directly into a trap set up by Commissioner Gordon and Bruce Wayne slash Batman when they engaged with Trump and visited his properties. So the characterization here, the framing of it, is not as the media wishes that Trump and Epstein had a connection. They had some sort of relationship because Trump wanted to partake in the offerings that Epstein and Maxwell were putting forth. It was very much that Epstein and Maxwell were targeting Trump and targeting Mar-a-Lago in the casino to rub elbows with rich and famous people in order to get to blackmail them. And they did not realize that they had stepped onto a property that was monitored by the FBI and that they were talking to Donald J. Trump, who was a DOJ asset. Bad move. P.S. Another bad move Epstein made was trying to, quote, weasel his way back into Trump's world in 2016. No doubt trying to make friends in high places ahead of a Trump presidency. A Clinton presidency, of course, would have been preferable to him. And so Epstein had lunch with Trump ally Peter Thiel back in 2016, who we now know was also a DOJ asset. <laughs> and PSS, if all of the above isn't enough to convince someone that Trump helped catch Epstein, not Trump partook in Epstein's enterprise, everyone should know that Trump, it was Trump's DOJ who indicted both Epstein and Maxwell. So you, you really can't square this circle that Epstein and Trump were best friends and they had a close relationship and um, whatever, when it's Trump's DOJ who went after Epstein and Maxwell and arrested them and then convicted Maxwell and she's in prison right now for 20 years. Um, all of that start, all of that came about under Trump. Now let's go through the citations, and this might be the most fun part. And this is something I get asked a lot, uh, especially this first section. I get asked a lot about Kyle. What is your evidence that Trump is a DOJ asset? Why do you think that? But and then people will say, well, but Trump says lots of mean things about FBI and DOJ, and so it doesn't. And then they're they got Jack Smith going after him, so it doesn't really seem like DOJ is, you know. It doesn't seem like this relationship is accurate. Like Trump probably isn't the asset. Maybe the FBI and Trump worked together at one time, but definitely not anymore because of Trump says things, mean things about the FBI. To understand that, you need to understand a concept called kayfabe that I've talked about a time or two. But first, let's go back to the premise. Let's go back to the original information as to why anyone would ever think that Trump and the FBI worked together that Trump was Batman to the FBI's Commissioner Gordon, um, and why people think that the Atlantic City Casino is a setup. 
so this is a memo that came out as part of a uh, a FOIA case that was actually about a guy named uh, Danny Sullivan, I believe, who was an FBI asset and had claimed to be an FBI la- asset, um, and he was a good he was good friends with Trump. And this memo came about kind of by accident. Um, the The FOIA ca- case was uh, looking into Danny Sullivan. That's why it says Sullivan here. Um, but as part of the documents that got released in relation to that was this memo. And this memo is dated September 22nd, 1981. And this is a memorandum written by an FBI agent. That's who the writer was. W-R-I-T-E-R. Writer. Or author of it. And he's writing to... Uh, to detail that he had a meeting with Trump, okay, ahead of the Atlantic City construction. So on 52180, so May 21st, 1980, Ryder, meaning the agent, was introduced to Source by the operating case agent. Source provided to Ryder on the above date a general background concerning LCN influence in the Eastern Conference of Teamsters. On 7-14-1980, Ryder again met with with the same top or met with the source in the presence of the case agent and discussed the same topic. Five of the meetings took place there thereafter involving Ryder, case agent, and source. During these meetings, source discussed public documents and general historical background regarding the Teamsters Union, as well as the organized labor movement in the United States as it relates to organized crime. So that's what they're really talking about here. Okay, the whole purpose is of this is that these FBI agents and their source are meeting to discuss organized crime specifically related to labor unions in in the area of the Northeast. Much of this information is the subject of many books, some of which source collaborated on with journalists in preparing the manuscripts. In early April of 1981, Ryder was contacted by the case agent and was subsequently advised that the source had a business relationship with Donald and Robert Trump. So we're talking about Danny Sullivan is the source and he has a business relationship with the Trumps. The source in this case owns a piece of property along with other partners in Atlantic City, upon which the Trump organization wants to build a casino. In early April 1981, Ryder and case agent met with Donald Trump. The purpose of this meeting was for Donald Trump to express his reservations about building a casino in Atlantic City. Trump advised agents, you know, these are FBI agents, that he had read in the press media and had heard from various acquaintances that organized crime elements were known to operate in Atlantic City. Trump also expressed at this meeting the reservation that his life and those around him would be subject to microscopic examination. Trump advised that he wanted to build a casino in Atlantic City, but he did not wish to tarnish his family's name. Inadvertently. Agents advised Trump that he should carefully think over his decision to build in Atlantic City and carefully prepare not only methods of securing employees' honesty, but also corporate integrity. Trump advised that he wished to cooperate with the FBI if he did decide to build a casino, and of course we know he did. The agents that were present advised, although they were not in the position to speak for the FBI or to guarantee anything, 
that he, if he in fact wished to build in Atlantic City and decided firmly on this matter, they would be glad to rediscuss the situation without making any commitments. After this initial meeting, the New York office began to research Atlantic City and its various regulating bodies, as well as what evidence existed regarding organized crime influence in that city. At an Atlantic City... Con- now, think about this. Trump and the Trump Org are wanting to build a casino in Atlantic City. They're aware of organized crime in the area. This is back in 1980, 1981. And Danny Sullivan is Trump's friend. And Danny Sullivan has bragged to Trump about being an FBI source. And so Trump decides, you know what? I better talk to Danny and see if he can get me a meeting with some FBI agents to discuss what I can do to guard my casino operation against organized crime. And the agents are like, yeah, we'd we'd be interested in helping you with that. Should you decide to build a casino? And right after this meeting, the New York field office decides let's let's go ahead and look into uh what would be involved in investigating organized crime in Atlantic City and what regulations are there and uh prepare to work with the Trumps. At an Atlantic City conference, Ryder discussed with bureau officials and the Atlantic City residency resident agency the possibility that a proposed casino casino owner might be willing to cooperate with the FBI. In June 1981, Ryder met again with Donald Trump and Robert Trump, during which time they advised that they felt confident that they wished to build a casino in Atlantic City. Trump advised Ryder, who was in the presence of the case agent, that he, Donald Trump, wished to provide full disclosure during the construction phase of his casino and subsequently once the casino was operational. So Donald Trump said, During the time that I am building this casino, I would like to fully cooperate with the FBI in investigating any organized crime. So this would this would this would uh, concern organized labor unions, uh, the mob that was heavily involved in the construction industry. Trump set up the construction phase. Think about this during the construction phase of his Atlantic City, Atlantic City operation. Trump involved the FBI and turned the construction phase of the hotel, of the casino and hotel, into a sting operation. That's what he did. He turned the construction phase. How else are you going to catch organized crime and labor unions that have, that are in construction? The mob that runs the construction industry in that area. Well, you turn a major construction project into a sting operation. And that's what Trump and the FBI did. Trump stated in order to show, wait, let me make sure I find my right place. Trump advised Ryder, who was in the process, full disclosure. And then Trump also said, subsequently to the casino being constructed. So he says, let's make it a sting during the construction phase. And then let's make it a sting from then on. From then on, this casino will be a trap for mobsters and organized crime. Trump stated in order to show that he was willing to fully cooperate with the FBI, he suggested that they use undercover agents within the casino. Trump invited undercover agents in the casino. Ryder advised Trump that he could not speak for the FBI. So this guy said, look, I can't, I can't speak for the FBI here. So just understand that. 
and he couldn't make any agreements or promises as per bureau, bureau policy in the matter. Trump asked Ryder his personal opinion regarding whether he should build in Atlantic City. And Ryder advised Trump on a personal level, not as a matter of bureau policy, that he himself thought there were easier ways that Trump could invest his money. Trump asked Ryder if he could attempt to introduce him to appropriate officials in the FBI with whom he could discuss this matter. So Trump, so the agent's like, look, man, appreciate the help, but you're jumping in as, as someone just, as Brian Murphy, good morning, just miss, just mentioned in the chat, you're jumping into La Cosa Nostra territory. That's what the LCN was up here. LCN, La Cosa Nostra. Okay. You're jumping into La Cosa Nostra territory here, bud. There's probably easier ways to invest your money. I don't think Trump was out to make money though. He was out to catch bad guys. Trump asked Ryder if he could attempt to introduce him to appropriate officials in the FBI with whom he would discuss, he could discuss this matter. Ryder advised Trump he would research this matter further and recontact him. At this point, Ryder initiated steps with the Newark field office and the Atlantic City Resident Agency to begin planning an undercover proposal concerning the proposed Trump casino. This proposal, now in thoroughly finished state, was to be discussed with Trump by the SACs um, of the New York office and the Newark office on October 1st, 1981. On September 21st, 1981, Ryder returned the call of Donald Trump and subsequently talked to Donald and Robert Trump via telephone. Trump advised Ryder that he traveled to Trenton, New Jersey on Wednesday of the previous week and had had met with DGE official Mickey Brown. Trump advised that Brown told him that he had no problem with Trump's background and expected him to be licensed in the immediate future. Brown, according to Trump, further stated that he had one problem and that involved captioned source. Trump stated that he had told Brown that the source was the first individual to preach honesty to him regarding his dealings in Atlantic City. Trump advised that he had also told Brown that source had introduced him to two agents. They're talking about Danny Sullivan. One of the names given was that of the writer. Trump stated that Brown told him that the source was not candid with DGE regarding some questions and that this might draw out the investigation. Trump advised Ryder that he told Brown of the source's relationship with the FBI only in the sense that it might nip things in the bud and prevent future problems. Trump said that he talked with Brown about nothing of a substantive nature, particularly involving any proposed undercover activity. On the same day, Ryder and case agent talked with the source. Source advised that he had been interviewed by DGE approximately a month and a half ago. DGE asked for documentation regarding source's business activities. Source advised that his attorney had inadvertently not sent DGE the appropriate documents, however, and would do so now. Source further advised that DGE officials asked him about his relationship with the FBI based on a stack of newspaper clippings with DGE officials had access to. Source declined to answer this question. Let me see if anything else mentions Trump. It does. Okay. It should be emphasized that Trump is not aware of the source's relationship with the FBI and knows only that the contacting agents are acquaintances. However, Ryder and case agent have repeatedly told Trump that they were not, ref they were not references for source and cannot speak for source's business dealings. The Trumps have advised Ryder and case agent that Source is involved as a labor consultant in their firm. They are aware that this is a very rough business, quote unquote, <laughs> and that Source knows people, some of whom may be unsavory and by the simple nature of the business. 
On September 21st, 1981, Source contacted Mickey Brown of DGE at Trump's request. Before Source could elaborate on the matter of this call, Brown told him that he, Brown, was attempting to talk with the Newark division of the FBI to verify some conversations that Trump had with Brown. Source advised Brown that he was calling regarding a different matter, that the question of whether or not he be a source of the FBI simply did not come up. Source told Brown not had to, source told Brown had inadvertently not sent appropriate business um, documentation to Brown. Source stated that he would not he would do so now. According to the source, he then asked Brown, "Is there anything else?" To which Brown responded, "No." It should be emphasized that Trump advised Ryder he did not talk with Brown about anything concerning the proposed undercover activity. It should further be emphasized that Source is not aware of the matter of this proposed activity. So there's another matter going on here with Brown and the FBI looking into him and someone else, and they're clarifying that Trump's not in on that thing right there. He didn't talk about him. Talk about that. So. This comes out and you say, okay, well, what of it? What of it? Well, I didn't pull it in the, I didn't pull the information from in the, in the citations right here for this post. But if you go and look, if you go and look up um, La Cosa Nostra and um, Scafa, or Scafo, Scafa, what is it? The Scafo family? Mostly based out of Philadelphia. Was it Scarfo? That's what it is. Scarfo. Yes. Yes. If you go and look up the Scarfo files on the FBI vault, I've gone over these before on the show. If you go and look into the Scarfo files in FBI vault, you will find that um, the Atlantic City Casino comes up over and over again. And it's because they were surveilling them, they had undercover agents in the casino. And this Scarfo family was another mob family that operated in the Philadelphia and New Jersey, New York area. Um, and that's, if you go and look at it, what you do is you go and look at when these prosecutions happened of them. And what do you know? It happened post Trump becoming an FBI asset and setting up the Atlantic city hotel to be one. And you go and look at all of these mob cases that played out in the 80s and 90s, and you start seeing a pattern where the Atlantic City Casino comes up, or a casino in Atlantic City, or a hotel, etc. And you track it down, and you find it leads, it leads to a property owned by the Trump org. Now, further reading, the press used to report about this stuff. This was big news for a while. Before Trump ran for president, Tommaso and Genovese, yep. Um, good morning, Lions Roar. And Snarky and American Nurse. Um, this was well known, and the media used to report about this. Um, there's Danny Sullivan right there. But then... It became, um, the media has done a lot of flips. You know how Democrats, Democrats tend to like to flip back and forth. You notice that they kind of have this reputation for flipping, um, cause they have no principles. Um, <laughs> uh, so 
I included this article because it's uh it goes into it's Washington Post. Um, and it goes into Trump's history with the FBI and how they were friends. And um, it goes into that art, what I just read, and it goes into some of the stories about it. Now, of course, they have their own angle about it. Uh, but the important thing to understand is that you can go and search and some stuff is on the archives. A lot of stuff is gone. A lot of stuff's gone. But the media used to report on Trump and the FBI's relationship and the work Trump did to help take down the mob and also the same with Rudy. But once Rudy and Trump became enemies of the mainstream media, they they switched that up and then they flipped back to it. They flipped back to saying that Trump and Rudy were friends with the FBI during Trump's administration once Mueller failed, quote unquote, to prosecute Trump. And then the media, if you go back and look, you'll find the same authors in the media, the same outlets at the same, and the same authors, okay? In 2013, 2014, whatever, 20 to 2015, they're talking glowingly about Trump's work with law enforcement. And then they switch to ignoring all that and disappear that kind of stuff from a lot of their websites and archives. And they start writing about how Trump is so corrupt because he's running for president, right? He becomes an enemy of theirs. And then because the FBI and the Mueller special counsel doesn't get Trump and get Rudy, they switch to writing about how the FBI is corrupt and they're protecting Trump and um, Mueller failed because Bill Barr protected Trump. And then now they flip back to the FBI is cracking down on MAGA extremists and Jack Smith is going to get Trump. They just go back and forth on it, just to whichever suits their narrative. But um, anyway, on the matter of one of Epstein's victims going to Mar-a-Lago, this is from the Maxwell trial, and I may at some point lose my cool and go into a rant about the Maxwell trial. We'll see. Um, this is about the Maxwell trial. So during that trial back in December of 2021, Jane um, is, a, is a pseudonym for one of the girls that testified, okay? Um, she was one of the youngest victims. And she testified Wednesday at that trial that she was taken to Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort when she was 14 years old to meet the former president. Now an adult, Jane said Epstein drove her to Trump's sprawling members-only club in a dark green car in 1994. So this is 94. This would be well before anyone knew anything about... Well, not anyone. This would be long before it was well known that Epstein... It was Epstein, right? She didn't provide details of the meeting, nor was she asked to by her defense attorney, Laura Menninger. Trump banned Epstein from his Palm Beach estate for hitting on a teenage daughter of a member, according to the book, The Grifters Club, which was an anti-Trump book. Okay, <laughs> this is an anti-Trump book, but even it admitted, yeah, it's true. He, uh, he banned him. The Epstein ousting took place more than two years after a grand jury charged the late disgraced financier with soliciting prostitution, but months before he pleaded guilty in 2008 to state criminal charges in Florida, including paying for sex from a 14-year-old girl. Jane, testifying under a pseudonym, 
also said she remembered Prince Andrew being on private flights with her. So that's where that came out. That was not new. Also on Tuesday, right here, Epstein's private pilot told jurors that Trump, former President Bill Clinton, tech mogul Bill Gates, and actor Kevin Spacey, and multiple U.S. senators had flown on aboard Epstein's Boeing 727. But they did not testify to Trump being on it. They said he, they said, I mean, Epstein being on it with Trump. Now, a little bit more on uh, Trump banning Epstein. This is from CNBC, not the friendliest outlet to President Trump. This is from August 4th, 2020. So this would be in full-on TDS, we hate Trump mode. President Donald Trump banned his former friend, the wealthy investor Jeffrey Epstein, from his exclusive Mar-a-Lago club for hitting on a teenage daughter. The late Epstein banishment by Trump from Palm Beach appears to have occurred months before Epstein pled guilty in 2008, but it also seems to have happened more than two years after a state grand jury charged Epstein. A Trump Organization official official last year denied that Epstein, who had a luxurious residence in Palm Beach, had been a dues-paying member of the club. Epstein died a month later in Manhattan Federal Jail for authorities, blah, blah, blah. At the time, Trump did not reveal publicly what led to his falling out with Epstein, whom he had not spoken to for up to 15 years. Trump said, quote, I'm not a fan of his. But Trump, a real estate developer and reality TV star for years, had been friends with Epstein before booting him from his club. Epstein also previously was friends with Bill Clinton. See how they're trying to draw the equivalency? See, they're friends. Trump's friends with Epstein, just like Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew are friends with Epstein. In 2002, Trump told New York Magazine, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. And that's what the media loves to pull that quote up. They love to pull that quote up. But here's something else to remember about what was going on at that time. In 92, a Florida businessman at Trump's request had organized a calendar girl competition at Mar-a-Lago. And remember back in the 90s, Trump was running the Miss America pageant, wasn't it? Is it Miss America? Something like that. He said, I arranged to have candidates, contestants fly in. The very first party, I said, who's coming tonight? I have 28 girls coming. It was Trump and Epstein. I said, Donald, this is supposed to be a party with VIPs. You're telling me it's you and Epstein? But Epstein's penchant for young women apparently became an issue for Trump and Mar-a-Lago years later. I just want to ask you guys, I wonder if Trump was aware back then in the 90s before other people were aware And if Trump said, you know what, let's just see if I can catch this guy. I wonder if I can catch this guy. I wonder if I can wear a wire and catch Epstein on on tape talking about his enterprise. Sure, Trump, Miss Universe pageant. Thank you, Coffee Gal. Sure, Trump was organizing a calendar girl competition at Mar-a-Lago, and maybe you find that distasteful, whatever. But how else do you catch Epstein? Now, I have no evidence that that is what was going on, but when you know who Epstein is, and then if you know who Trump is, and that he's an FBI asset, and that he literally is Batman, he literally is Bruce Wayne slash Batman, this kind of a thing comes off differently. It also comes off differently when... Trump for a time 
didn't speak about Epstein and their falling out because maybe he couldn't, maybe he couldn't speak about it. And maybe Trump's comment about how, yep, he's fun to be with. It's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do. And many of them on the younger side, that comment hits different when you think of Trump targeting Epstein, not Epstein targeting Trump, right? So that's that article. Now, Trump and the Trump organization served as assets of the FBI DOJ for decades. And there's a there's way more history to this than I have currently gone into. Dawson recently wrote a really good thread on it back in October. Um, but Dawson has many threads on this, many threads on it. He also has a website where he's written about it and it goes deeper than just that 1981 memo. It goes back to 1977. It goes back to world war one, even because Dawson uncovered some evidence and I've gone over this on the show previously that Trump's uh, Trump's grandfather helped the FBI catch Nazis um, at one point. Um, let's, I'm trying to remember. Well, I shouldn't call them Nazis. German saboteurs. Um, it goes it goes way back. So there's been this relationship between the Trumps and law enforcement in the U.S., particularly in New York City. For like a hundred years. Um, in fact, there's reason to believe that Trump's grandfather was uh was murdered. Not that he he died suddenly of uh the 1918 flu. Um it seems it seems it seems possible that his grandfather was actually murdered. Um because of his death came on suddenly. He didn't spend weeks in the hospital suffering from some sort of lung infection and then die. He dropped dead. And then it was written up as though he died from the Spanish flu. So anyway, Dawson has this uh, thread. I'm just going to read just a little bit of it. Okay. We already went through this right here with uh, the casino. Okay. Um, but the one I want to get to is actually this recent court case. Let's see. Dawson mentions it here. I'm going to, um, well, I might save that. There's also a sting at the F. Let's do this one, Taj Mahal, because I can get into the other one in a minute. So Trump FBI stings at the Taj Mahal started in 1981, but continued until 2014. So there's an argument that I've had, or not an argument, but you know, some people have argued to me, um, or countered what I say about Trump being an asset by saying, well, Kyle, that was back in the eighties. Yeah. Trump helped out the FBI in the eighties catching organized crime, but they, they, he hasn't been doing that for a long time. You can't, you can't pull up a document from 1981 and then say, well, there was a arrangement back then, but that was back then it's, it's over now. And it's been over for a long time because the FBI is corrupt and bad and blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, we know for a fact it went on until at least 2014, and we have good reason to believe it went on well beyond that. So 
right here. Trump FBI stings at Taj Mahal started in 1981, but continued until 2014 when Trump helped the FBI catch Russian spies by pretending he wanted to build a tower in Moscow. If you don't know, that's what the entire... Here, I'm going to switch off that thread and go to uh, Twitter right here. That's what Trump Tower in Moscow was all about. The entire thing was a sting operation to catch um, to catch Russian mobsters and corrupt people. And it was Trump, Michael Cohen, Felix Sater. All three of them are FBI assets. And all three of them were working to catch bad guys. Check it out. As set forth below in the summer of 2014, Evgeny Buryakov, or Zinya, a.k.a. Zinya, the defendant met numerous times with confidential source working for the FBI, CS1. CS1 posed as the representative of a wealthy investor looking to work with Bank One to develop casinos in Russia. We're talking about Trump. Based on my review of audio recordings of Buryakov's meetings with CS1, as well as my knowledge of this investigation, I believe that during the course of these meetings, Buryakov's statements and conduct reflected his strong desire to obtain information about subjects far outside the scope of his work as a bank employee, and consistent with his interest as a Russian intelligence agent. These meetings established Buryakov's willingness to solicit and accept documents that CS1 claimed he had obtained from U.S. government agency, and which purportedly contained information potentially useful to the Russian Federation. The following is based on my discussions with CS1, my review of audio recordings of CS1's meetings with Buryakov, and surveillance conducted by the FBI, and lawful interceptions of conversations between Buryakov and Igor Sporyashev, the defendant. On or about July 22, 2014, CS1 called Evgeny Buryakov. CS1 arranged to meet Buryakov at Bank One's offices in Manhattan on July 25, 2014. On or about July 22, 2014, Evgeny Buryakov and Igor Sporyashev, the defendants, had a conversation. Buryakov and Sporyashev discussed an email to Buryakov regarding the potential development of casinos in Russia, Trump casinos. Bryakov stated that the subject of the email was concerning, quote, some sort of fucking nonsense relating to casinos. Spuryashev stated, it's unclear. Casino, Russia, like some sort of a setup, trap of some sort. I cannot understand what the point is. Spuryashev added, quote, you could meet an associate of CS1 if you want. You will look and decide for yourself. I'm trying to remember who the associate was. I'm trying to remember exactly the players, but... It may come out right over here, but I, the, it's Michael Cohen. It's Felix Sater. I think CS1 right here is Sater. And then uh, the associate is Michael Cohen, I think. If you want, I will look and decide for, for your, you can look and decide for yourself. It's been a while since I've looked into this. Based on my training experience and participation in this investigation, I believe that in this conversation, Evgeny Buryakov, a.k.a. Zinya, and Igor Sporyashev, the defendants, discussed Buryakov's upcoming meeting with CS1. In the meeting is related to some sort of effing nonsense. Sporyashev responded that the meeting with CS1 was about a casino in Russia, might be some sort of setup, etc., etc. On or about July 25th, 2014, CS1 met Evgeny Buryakov at Bank One's offices in Manhattan. CS1 explained that CS1 was interested in developing the casinos in Russia. CS1 invited Buryakov to visit his office in Atlantic City to further discuss the casino project. 
Boryakov agreed. On or about August 7th, 2014, Boryakov and Sporyashev spoke about Boryakov's drive um, or trip to Atlantic City to schedule for the next day. Sporyashev told Boryakov not to drive to Atlantic City, but rather to let another man, male two, drive. On or about August 8th, 2014, CS1 met with Boryakov and mail two in Atlantic City. The meeting lasted from around noon to 7 p.m. and included a tour of casinos in Atlantic City. <laughs> At the end of the day, CS1 took Buryakov and mail two to CS1's office where CS1 gave a PowerPoint presentation on the proposed casino project in Russia. At the end of the PowerPoint presentation, CS1 noted that U.S. sanctions against Russia could have an impact on their project. CS1 also presented Buryakov with a United States government document labeled Internal Treasury Use Only, which contained a list of Russian individuals who had been sanctioned by the United States. CS1 stated that the CS1 had contact in the United States government and could get more information about sanctions if Buryakov was interested. Buryakov replied that he was interested in such information. At the end of the meeting, Buryakov asked if he could, he could keep government document one which CS1 then handed to Buryakov. Buryakov took the document with him and left the meeting. If I remember right, this document was um, partially untrue. If I, if I could be incorrect, but if I remember correctly, um, this was a document that was uh, bait. It was, it was created by DOJ or by the FBI as part of the sting operation. And they fed them misinformation that looked real to see if they would take it as part of the whole sting. If I remember right, on or about August 28th, 2014, CS1 met with Buryakov at Bank One again. During this meeting, CS1 gave Buryakov another United States government document labeled unclassified slash F-O-U-O, which was a list. It says for official use only. That's what F-O-U-O stands for, which was a list of Russian banks broken down by size. Government document two. CS1 told Buryakov that CS1 stated or obtained the list from his contact in the United States government. CS1 also stated that the United States government was using this list to identify Russian banks on which to impose sanctions. Buryakov asked CS1 for more information regarding sanctions, specifically when more sanctions will be imposed, the type of sanctions to be imposed, and which entities will be named in future sanctions. Bryakov also stated that he would like any information about sanctions that CS1 could obtain, not just information limited to the financial sector. Bryakov took government document two during the course of the meeting and left the meeting with the document. Immediately afterwards, on August 28, 2014, a meeting with CS1, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a meeting with CS1, Bryakov, um, they called Sporyashev. Bryakov asked Sporyashev, whether it had received the school books. Sporyakov and Sporyashev then made plans to meet that night. Sporyakov left Bank One office that night around 7.15 p.m., holding a briefcase and traveled directly to Sporyashev's home in the Bronx, New York. Sporyakov remained at Sporyashev's home for approximately 40 minutes before leaving with the briefcase. Based on my training, experience, and participation in this investigation, I believe that after Bryakov obtained government document two from CS1 on August 28, 2014, Bryakov called Sporyashev to inform Sporyashev he had intelligence information for Sporyashev, referring to government document two by code as the school books. 
Based on my training and experience and my knowledge of this investigation, I further believe that Buryakov then went to Sporyashev's home and Governor Darkin to his Sporyashev. All right. So I thought it was worth reading that whole thing. Go back to Dawson here. Trump then ran for president, right? He's setting up this Moscow hotel casino thing. The whole thing's a sting operation to catch Russian mobsters and, uh, and agents. Trump then runs for president and friends of John McCain and Hillary created the Russia hoax, telling people that the FBI was investigating Trump when the FBI was helping, when Trump was actually helping Trump, <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, let me start over. <laughs> so 2014 into 2015, Trump and his allies who are also FBI, FBI assets, Michael Cohen, Felix Sater, Trump, they're all, they're all FBI assets. And Felix Sater is more than that. He's an asset of DIA, CIA. I don't even know what else. Like the guy is, the guy has done a lot of stuff um, for our country. A lot. He's a hero. So they got this sting operation set up catching these Russians. Trump decides to run for president. He's still an asset. You have an asset run, an FBI asset who is going to run for president. He sets up his entire campaign as a sting operation. Then he ran, he runs for president and friends of John McCain and Hillary Clinton, such as Rodney Joffe and Christopher Steele and Igor Deripaska, et cetera, et cetera. They, and Andy McCabe, they set up the Russia hoax. And with that Russia hoax, they tell people that the FBI is investigating Trump. When, in truth, Trump was helping the FBI investigate Russians and swampy Americans who were working for Russians. But people believed Hillary back then. They believed the lies that Hillary and her friends put out. And some people still believe those lies. Hillary's team hoped that Trump was undisciplined and would reveal the covert operations against the Russians, destroying his own chance of winning the election. She did this knowing the FBI couldn't expose Trump as an American covert asset without destroying decades of sources. Think about that. Think about the position the FBI's in as these allegations against Trump come out. The FBI can't come out and just like start saying, actually, guys, look, there's no truth to this thing that we're investigating Trump because Trump's actually one of our guys. If they do that, they blow up for decades of an extremely advanced, very successful sting operation that's multi, multi-city, all the entire Trump org, all of these properties are you are are like they're all setting up all Trump's construction projects. They're all set up to catch organized crime. Not that Trump doesn't make ton of money too, and that he's he's uh, a businessman. But think about, remember how Trump has had how many hundreds of businesses? And the media will say, well, he's this one failed and that one failed. Some of those businesses, Trump never intended for them to succeed. They were set up to, to collect evidence and catch certain bad guys. So the FBI can't expose their asset in 2016. What they can do is allow their asset to be the bait. And that's what happens. 
and all these people get put into Trump's campaign who are completely corrupt, uh, such as um, uh, what's his name that Hunter's friend was working with, Gal Luft, and the CIA, CSIS, uh, the former um, the former CIA director. Um, oh, I can't think of his name. He got he got planted into Trump's team. M Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort, complete plant into Trump's campaign. And all these other people get planted into Trump's campaign. The FBI, quote unquote, is investigating Trump, but really they're investigating the people inside Trump's campaign and the people who were trying to frame Trump as a Russian asset. When he the whole time he's an FBI asset. Mueller and Barr even said in writing that Trump was never. I think it was Barr who wrote it. No, maybe it was Mueller. One or the other. They wrote, Trump was never under investigation. Trump was never under investigation in the Mueller special counsel. But the media told you he was. While some people have been believing Hillary's fake news that the FBI was investigating Trump, some of us has been, have been attacked continuously for learning in 2018 what was really happening. That Trump was surrounded by FBI informants catching the swamp creatures. Something else, and I'll bounce off, I'll jump off of Dawson's thread. There's way more here, and everybody should read it. Um, something else, uh, Carter, um, Carter Page, Carter Page is an asset, so is Flynn. Flynn's over in Flynn's over in um, in Russia, and the media try and use it against him, telling them that. Uh, see, Flynn's, Flynn's close with Putin and Flynn's corrupted by the Russians. When Flynn was over there at that meeting, at that event, and then when he comes back, he debriefs with the, with the DIA, I believe. Or may have been FBI and the DIA. He comes back and debriefs with them because he went over there and he was doing work and, get, and like functioning as an asset. Same thing with Carter Page. All right, so I have here, moving on, I have here, I've made my point, moving on. Everyone, this is Derek, and we're... Make sure I have the audio, yeah. So this is an old interview with um, Bradley Edwards, who has long been investigating Epstein and is partially or wholly responsible, uh, maybe primarily responsible for getting these recent Epstein documents unsealed. This is an interview with him. Uh, by a journalist way back in 2009. Here's here's what he says about Trump and Epstein. Everyone, this is Derek, and we're here at the Palm Beach County Courthouse. Just wrapped up the civil trial dealing with Mr. Bradley Edwards, attorney who's represented many of the victims of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. First off, thank you so much for your work and for everything you've done. Absolutely, you're welcome. This goes to the, the more salacious rumors, but I would like you to just, whatever you can say on it, Obviously, our current president has had relationships with Epstein in the past, and there are those, uh, Katie Johnson and maybe other victims who have accused Trump of being involved in things like this. Um, in my experience, Trump supporters will not listen to anything along those lines. Obviously, we're not a court of law here right now, but are those claims of those, that case was dropped? It was dropped before it went to, to court. In your opinion as a lawyer and your experience, is there anything you can say as to the validity of those claims or whether or not there will be any, you know, any more about that Not there will be any you know any more about that nothing at all I the only thing that I can say about President Trump 
is that he is the only person who in 2009, when I served a lot of subpoenas on a lot of people, or at least gave notice to some pretty uh, connected people that I was going, that I wanted to talk to them. He is the only person who picked up the phone and said, let's just talk. I'll give you as much time as you want. I'll tell you what you need to know and was very helpful in the information that he gave and gave no indication whatsoever that he was involved in anything untoward whatsoever, but had good information that checked out and that helped us sure. and that we didn't have to take a, a, a deposition of him. And that was in 2009? That was in 2009. So, Do you know if there's any truth to James Patterson's claims that Trump kicked Epstein out of Mar-a-Lago? I've definitely heard that. Yeah. I, I definitely heard that. I don't know that it was Trump himself as opposed to a manager there. Uh, Trump's club, so yeah, people credit him. Trump's, I, I've heard the rumor that Epstein was kicked out of there for allegedly trying to pick up somebody's daughter or something like that. But I think I did chase that down sure. as far as I could and, and never was able to confirm it. There you go. There you go. Now, I'm just going to finish up here. Look, if you, don't, if you don't believe me, if after everything I presented, you don't believe me about Trump and the Trump organization serving as assets of DOJ for decades. If you don't believe me about that, I get it, okay? I am I I can read the room as far as the broader info space, right? I, I can read the room. I understand why people uh think what they think about FBI DOJ and them coming after Trump and that there's this is completely contradictory information that Trump and the FBI actually have a very good relationship and have been working together for years. Totally, totally get it, okay? But if you don't believe me, will you please believe this document from, tw from August 20th of 2021 where a journalist was working on something else and filed a FOIA request and was asking about a source in a particular case. And the way this played out, the DOJ had to admit that Trump was an asset. That, he, they were the, that Trump and the Trump org were the source. This was a lawsuit brought by a journalist named Seth Hetna, who is no fan of Trump. And the plaintiff is a journalist. He sought all information in the FBI's possession about Kirillovich, Ivankov, okay, Ivankov, whatever. Okay, this Russian national with alleged ties to organized crime. Again, that's what Trump does, is try and catch organized crime. He was sentenced to prison for extortion in the United States in 1997, extradited to Russia in 2004. He was assassinated in 2009. Okay. The plaintiff, Debbie Seth Hetna, alleged that the FBI provided, quote, no substantive response to his FOIA request. DOJ ultimately processed plaintiff's request and it produced some records in full, some in parts, and withheld others in full, and it moved for summary judgment on July 2nd, 2020. The plaintiff opposed the motion. And the defendant, FBI, replied. And for the reasons set forth below, the case will be dismissed as moot, pursuant to Federal Procedure 12H3. Okay. So they had this back and forth over this information and in this FOIA case. 
the judge is like, all right, well, you got that. This now it's now doesn't matter because the information ended up coming out. Federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction, and the law presumes that a, a cause lies outside its limit of prediction. Blah 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 blah. All this case law, it's very important, but I'm not going to read it right now. And we have this limitation, the speculation, blah blah blah. In his opposition to defendant's motion for summary judgment, so that'd be what Seth Hetna said. Plaintiff stated that he had narrowed his challenge to object only to withholding of records in full and to those withholdings in just two contexts. First, plaintiff stated that he would object to any assertions of exemption 6 and 7C, exemptions covering disclosures that would result in unwarranted invasion of personal privacy on behalf of the Trump organization, as opposed to an individual person as a basis for withholding a record in full. Second, in the wake of of the assertion in the government's memorandum that, quote, an implied assurance of confidentiality also exists to protect from disclosure information provided by a third party regarding Russian organized crime. Plaintiff noted an objection to any assertions of Exemption 7D, which permits agencies to withhold law enforcement records that would disclose the identity of a confidential source as a basis for withholding a record in full that potentially implicated Donald J. Trump as a third-party source operating under an implied assurance of confidentiality. Plaintiff then utilized the briefing opportunity to ask the defendant whether any records had been withheld in full on those grounds. He then took the position that if the agency had asserted Exemption, 7, exemption 6 and 7C to protect an organization, that would have been improper and that the public interest in this information would outweigh the privacy interest in any event. With respect to exemption 7D, plaintiff took the position that if the document had been withheld in full under that exemption to shield the identity of Mr. Trump as an informant, that information would not be subject to exemption because Mr. Trump's alleged offer to cooperate with the FBI in previous investigations, which according to plaintiff was comparable to an implied assurance of confidentiality, had already been officially disclosed in a memorandum plaintiff attached as an exhibit in his opposition. With its reply, the agency offered a supplemental declaration that answered the question. With respect to the first issue, the declarant averred the agency that um, no had not ex asserted Exemption 6 and 7C on behalf of the Trump Organization at all. As this, to the second issue, he averred that the category of exemption the agency had designated as Exemption 7D Category six, quote, name identifying data or information provided by an individual under an implied assurance of confidentiality had not been invoked to withhold any record in full related to an informant with implied assurance of confidentiality. He also enumerated the reasons why, in the agency's view, the record attached to plaintiff's opposition, which related to the investigation that took place 12 years before the events underlying the FOIA request and did not indicate on its face how it came to publicly came publicly available did not qualify as any sort of official disclosure. In light of the circumstances on August 11, 2021, the court ordered the plaintiff to show cause by August 18th. Nothing has been filed in response, and it appears from the facts set forth above that there are no issues to be resolved, so therefore it's dismissed as mute. Check the footnote. The footnote says, the declarant also stated that, quote, to the extent... Plaintiff seeks records indicating whether or not a third-party individual was an FBI informant. 
the FBI relies on a Glomar response pursuant to FOIA exemption B7D. So what this is saying, if you didn't catch it, is that Trump, it is publicly known, it is publicly known that Trump served and cooperated with FBI investigations in the past 12 years ago. And Seth Hetna submitted that saying, look, if you guys are trying to protect the name of this third party or whatever, because it's Trump, it's already publicly known that Trump cooperated in an investigation 12 years ago. And the FBI says, well, that shouldn't have never been public. We, and, um, we, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, block us from protecting the identity and the confidentiality of our source now because they are still a source. The short and the sweet of it is that the FBI, DOJ, in this FOIA case, had to admit that Trump, yes, was a source 12 years ago that never should have been public, and he still is a source now as, as concerns this case, and we can't turn over to you these documents you're seeking because they're exempt because of confidentiality assurances of confidentiality to the Trump organization and because the need, the exemption to protect sources and methods. And this is a case from 2021. So post Trump presidency, the DOJ is still protecting Trump as a source, but the way this played out because certain information was already public, such as the memo I read to you earlier, it was already, it was already out this document right here. I hope that makes sense. I hope I laid that out in a way that makes sense. I've gone over that document before on the show. I did it back in like April, 2022, I think, or May, 2022. And lastly, I included this article uh, right here where uh, it's about how Epstein tried to get in good with Trump world. And this is actually recent from August 30th, 2023. And um, I find it pretty funny because it talks, it's a, it's kind of a hit piece, right? It's from Vanity Fair. And um, they're trying to say, oh, yeah, Epstein and Trump were friends and then Trump was going to be, be president. So Epstein was trying to uh, reestablish his friendship with him after having a falling out. So he decided he would contact tech billionaire Peter Thiel and Colony Capital founder Thomas Barrick, who actually was uh, indicted and convicted a while back um, for being bought off by UAE, I think. Um so Epstein try Epstein has lunch with Peter Thiel, right? Because he wants to he wants to because Peter Thiel is an ally and a huge supporter of Trump, right? And guys, like the month after this article comes out, it's revealed that Peter Thiel was also an FBI asset. <laughs> so it's just hilarious to me that Peter Thiel, I mean that the Jeffrey Epstein uh stepped into Trump's trap once between in the nineties and the early two thousands and Trump was an asset then. And, um, I'm sure cooperated in whatever way he could to help catch Epstein. And then Peter Thiel doesn't learn his lesson. I mean, um, Jeffrey Epstein doesn't learn his lesson and he sees that Hillary Clinton and Trump are neck and neck in the race in 2016. And he knows that if Hillary Clinton wins, he's good. He's good. He's in like Flynn. Like he's, he's good. He doesn't need to worry about anything. That's what he wants to have happen. But just in case Trump is the winner, Epstein needs to get in good with Trump again, because, because 
he's probably suspects Trump. Trump knows about what Epstein is into. So Epstein needs to find a way into Trump's world and try and get some blackmail, try and get some, uh, some favoritism, some influence somehow. So he has this brilliant idea that, Oh, I'm going to go talk to Peter Thiel. I'm going to have lunch with Peter Thiel and that'll help me get in good with Trump world. And little does he know he has, he steps right into the trap of another (laughs) FBI asset. (laughs) Oh, Oh, it's awesome. I love it so much. So, I didn't expect it to take me that long to go over, go through all that stuff, uh, but uh, it did. So I'll, I'm going to clip it out. I'll clip out the very first. I'll make a short clip for the very first part. Okay. I'll make, I'll make a short clip just for the very first part in case you just want to share like a 10 minute thing. And then I'll make a clip of the entire, the entire segment that we just did and upload it to rumble. Um, okay. Let's move on. Let's move on. That was fun. I do want to answer filter dogs questions real quick. Uh, filter dog over on, um, on Foxhole says if Cohen and Trump work together on the sting, why is Cohen so butthurt now? That is because of kayfabe. That is because of kayfabe. Um, Michael Cohen is taking his lumps and is willing to be the butt of the joke and willing to even lie and be convicted of lying. Um, Remember a long time ago, Michael Cohen said that he would take a bullet for Trump, I think he said. And, um, well, he doesn't have to take a bullet, but what he's going through is that he's, uh, he's lying and being caught lying and he's going through all sorts of stuff because Michael Cohen loves Donald Trump and Michael Cohen is an asset and has worked as an asset before. It's all theater. And the more you look at it, from the perspective of it being theater, the more it comes across as theater. Um, this most recent thing with um, the cases that were used to get him out of prison for a time being fake cases, right? Um, I haven't, I'll admit, I haven't dug deep into the court filings on that specifically, but at a glance, what I saw is that it looks like his lawyers are the ones who actually came up with this stuff. And then Cohen put his name on it. But regardless of what it is, um, Cohen, Cohen, think about this. Cohen got out of prison on those cases, right? Just in time for him to go to Alvin Bragg and tell a bunch of lies about Trump and Stormy Daniels. Like, how could it be any, any more perfectly timed to create the circus that, that needed to be created? Um, and then filter dog, you have another great question. Um, and thank you for the, for the gold over on Foxhole said, so the Russia hoax had crumbs, but press came to the wrong conclusion. Yeah. So there is Russia, the Russia hoax, there was collusion between Hillary Clinton, John McCain and others, other swamp creatures and some Russians such as Danchenko and, um, Igor Deripaska, uh, some others, right? And then also people who were really swampy, like Paul Manafort and um, Chuck Dolan, um, all of these, and Christopher Steele, and and then like you have the corrupt people in the FBI, such as Andy McCabe and Bruce Orr. Okay, so 
there is truth to it, but the, the what happened was Hillary Clinton and her friends made sure to come up with various hoaxes to try and connect Trump to the inverse of the uh, the hoax, right? Like the inverse of the relationship. So they inverted the swamp's relationship. The swampy players had their corrupt relationship with Russians that were real. They inverted the stories about those to be about Trump having swampy relationships, not them. And then they came up with various hoaxes to try and connect Trump to these Russian cre- swamp creatures, such as the Alpha Bank hoax and the Steele dossier hoax and all the allegations that are in it. And again, I feel like pointing out is that um, I, fe- I feel like pointing out that Christopher Steele's dossier is so poorly put together and it ignores so much it ignores so much material that he could have used that it's almost like he did a bad job on purpose. Like I still have this question over Christopher Steele. I don't think he's a good guy or anything. I don't think he's like in on the sting, but his dossier was so poorly put together and he's a longtime professional MI five agent, Intel agent officer. He was in charge of their um I can't remember what it's called, but it's their it's their it's their Russian counterintelligence outfit. He was an he was an officer, okay? He he is capable and has put together really good stuff. Like the guy knows how to assemble a dossier of intel. But for some reason what he put forth is the steel dossier is so Half, it's not even half baked. It's it's really bad, and it makes me wonder if he was ticked off at the people who hired him, and he did a bad job on purpose. Like I'm not saying he's an asset, and I'm not saying like he's a like he's a good guy. I'm not saying he's kayfabe. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that it's so bad that no respectable. From my understanding, from listening to other Intel analysts, um, that why would anybody put their name on it? And I kind of think it's because he himself was like last minute put in a position to have to come up with something to try and shore up Hillary's hoax because it wasn't working. They were failing to connect Trump. And like it all goes back, like the whole thing is. Looking back on it, it seems to me like they were scr- like they were scrambling to come up with anything because the DNC hack story failed. Like more and more, I think that they originally thought they would be able to create this DNC hack story and say that Russia hacked the DNC to try and help Trump, and they thought that would be enough to get the FBI to investigate Trump and his campaign and that they had their plants in the campaign. So they thought that they would be able to just completely torpedo Trump and by, and by the conventions, Hillary would be ahead by 15 points and they wouldn't have to worry about it. Right? Like they, I think they thought it was going to go off super well. There's no way Trump could ever win. He was net. There was no way he could ever be a threat to them. And 
with their DNC hack story in place, which I, I think they wanted the DNC to be quote unquote hacked. I think they hired people to intrude Russians. I think they hired Russians to intrude on the DNC in the first place in order to create the story. Um, and then it didn't go off like they thought. And so they come up with alpha bank hoax and they come up with the steel dossier and they do all of these things, trying to connect Trump more and more and more. And it's all falling apart. And, um, yeah, that's what I think it played out that way. The more I look back on it, the more I see it as they, they failed over and over again. And part of the reason they failed is because they were going after an asset who was protected. Um, Filter Dog said, then do you think HRC knew about the Russia sting and used for nefarious purposes? I'm not sure they... I don't... I think they probably thought there was more fire... There was more fire there than, than, like... I think they saw the smoke coming from Trump empire as to... Um, Trump having these relationships, you know, like Trump in order to be a successful asset and run successful sting operations, Trump has to come across as a, uh, a swampy guy on purpose. He has to have swampy relationships. He has to come across as being someone who's part of the swamp in some respect. And then it invites the, the other swamp creatures to come in and try and do swampy deals with them. Right? So I think because of the Trump Moscow tower deal and because of other things, because of some properties that Trump had flipped that he had bought from Russians and then flipped for much more money. They thought Trump was maybe not as corrupt as them, but corruptible. Uh, he wasn't complete. They thought that he wasn't completely, you know, this good guy. They didn't think of him as a good guy. Um, and they didn't think of him as an FBI asset. So they thought that once they, created this hoax and the charge connecting him to Russia, that it would kind of be a self-fulfilling thing where there would naturally come up other things and other crimes he engaged in. And that didn't happen because the guy's clean. And so they were like, well, shit, he's clean. We got to do, we got to come up with something. And so they scrambled. That's why I think the steel dossier is so poor. Um, I think it, I think they could have, uh, I think they scrambled to put out anything they could to try and um, get the FBI to investigate and, and launch a public investigation. See, this deal dossier, I think, wasn't meant to be successful on its own. I think it was meant to spurn the FBI into launching an investigation into Trump, making it go public, and that being another torpedo to Trump's campaign ship. What they didn't understand is that Trump was protected because he was already an asset. And when the FBI like decides, okay, we're going to investigate the Trump campaign, well, that Trump himself was already wearing a wire. <laughs> they already had surveillance and ins they already had direct line of sight into the Trump campaign. <laughs> In anyway. <laughs> so all right. I want to move on to Miles Guo. Hey, Karma Patriot, good morning. Yep, bait set trap. Yep. All right. Um, United States versus Quok, Jay, and Wang. The Miles Guo case. The Miles Guo case out of, case out of the SDNY. So, 
I have gone over this case since it first was announced. Um, last time we touched on this case, I don't think we've touched on it since March 29th, 2023. And that's when I made this post, which got me the bumper sticker from Buster Lou. Um, I've always been excited about this case because I think Miles, well, I'll read my post, but something that may surprise you, something that may surprise you guys is I've adjusted just a little bit my perspective on some key players in this case, and I'm thankful for it. Okay. I'm feeling, I'm feeling much less stressed about this case and the, and I've, in, in bringing this case up, one of the reasons we haven't been keeping up with this case on the show is because I have found that uh, I have, I've just done a, on balance, I've decided it hasn't been worth it uh, for the amount of feathers that I ruffle when I go into this case. And that's, and that's because it relates to Steve Bannon. And I have been very concerned about that relationship. So anyway, Miles Guo has been hit with another superseding indictment. The last one came in March and now there's a new superseding indictment. By the way, the superseding indictment came on like the same day that the judge denied again, miles Guo's attempt to get bond, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, it's, it's hilarious to me that that it played out that way. Um, so, New superseding indictment, it adds one more charge to Ho Wan Kwok, a.k.a. Miles Guo. One more count against Guo. Two more counts against Ken Ming Jae, who, a.k.a. William Jay, who is still on the run. Last known location was like was the UAE, I think, but um, pretty sure he's still, he hasn't been arrested. He's a fugitive. Then Yan Ping Wang, or Yvette, um, it adds three more charges onto her. Okay. So there's, uh, six more charges added one to Kwok, two to Jay, three to Wang. Uh, Yanping Wang was, uh, Miles Guo's chief of staff, quote unquote, his close aide, assistant, whatever. William Jay is the China is the CCP money man. William Jay is very high up in the uh, Chinese communist party and is a member of like their super high up committee. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like this worldwide communist influence committee. And he's a very rich man and he's the money man with Miles Guo. Um, the same time this is filed right here, you got uh, Guo's bond being denied. He has to sit in prison. So does Yang or so does Wang. They're both sitting in prison right now and have been since the indictment. <coughs> So this is what I need to advise you guys of. I do not agree with the common sentiment that Guo is a quote, take down the CCP good guy who is being wrongfully prosecuted by the Biden DOJ. I do not agree with that at all. And that is because after going over filings in this case, just because I haven't been mentioning this case on the show doesn't mean I haven't been monitoring it. I have been, um, after going over files in this case and in another civil case that was involving Guo in which he had to testify and watching various clips of Guo and Yvette speaking in Chinese in Mandarin, they say very different things in Mandarin than what Guo says in English on Steve Bannon's show. 
In fact, they say the opposite when they're speaking in Mandarin of what Guo says when he's around Steve Bannon. It is my opinion and the opinion of a few other folks that Miles Guo and Yvette and Jay, they are agents of the Chinese Ministry of State Security who successfully infiltrated MAGA. They have now been caught by the SDNY in multiple fraud schemes. And personally, I think MAGA would do well to disabuse themselves of the notion that Guo was ever earnestly trying to take down the CCP. Now, a year ago, me, I, that was my opinion a year ago. And that opinion did not go over so well with a lot of folks because of everyone's love for Steve Bannon. And because Steve, Miles Guo has been featured heavily with Steve Bannon and they have, have had interest together. And Steve Bannon has literally lived on Miles Guo's yacht for a time. And Miles Guo is the principal funder or investor into Gitter, the app. So this has been um, a bit of a difficult thing, right? Well, I want to tell you that Miles Guo has now been hit with a racketeering conspiracy charge. Rico. They are bringing Rico charges against Miles Guo. And the thing that I have been very worried about, I'll tell you right now, I believe Steve Bannon is a patriot. I believe Steve, Pan Steve Bannon is 100%, no doubt in my mind, a patriot who is loyal to Donald Trump. But I have been extremely worried that Steve Bannon got caught up in Miles Guo's fraudulent schemes and that Steve would catch a charge. I have been very worried about it. And I've had several arguments and discussions with folks about it, including my friend Karma Patriot, who's in chat right now, and and others. Um, Chris Paul, John, I've had I've had lots of discussions about it. And my position has always been that Steve Bannon is a patriot and that I think he's a, I think he's a good guy. I've just been very, very worried that as Trump once said about him, he's sloppy. And I've been very worried that what Trump meant about Steve being sloppy was that Steve was sloppy in business. And so I've just been worried, guys. I really have. And I've been dreading. I've, I've believed for a long time that Miles Guo would be hit with a RICO charge. And I have been very worried that I would come, I would go live on this show one morning to go over those RICO charges and that Steve Bannon would be one of the defendants. That has been a big concern for me. So yesterday when this, when I came across this superseding indictment and Steve Bannon was not included in it, and it was the RICO charge I had been expecting, I was so relieved. And I am so relieved because it gives me hope. It, it, makes, it just gives me relief. And then it also gives me confidence that our little theory that, I have, that we have had and that I have wanted to believe in, but I've never, I've never quite bought into it. The theory that Steve Bannon is also an asset. And that Steve Bannon helped catch Miles Guo and was not caught by him. I've always wanted to believe that. 
And Karma Patriot has been telling me that for a long time. And that that's what she, that's what she thinks. And I've, I've thought, man, I want that to be true so bad. I'm just really worried about this right here. So, well, I'm not near as worried. I'm not worried now because I think that if Bannon was going to be indicted in relation to any of the schemes that Miles Guo was involved in, it would have come this week with this racketeering charge. So I, I've, I've breathed a huge, huge sigh of relief. And I'm also really glad to see Miles Guo get busted. So we've already previously gone over Miles Guo's case, multiple fraud schemes. He fraudulently obtained over a billion dollars from uh, Chinese dissidents, from patriotic Americans. Um, he had multiple multiple fraud schemes that involved fake cryptocurrency. It wasn't cryptocurrency at all, even though it was sold as such. Um, fake um, investment schemes. He fleeced. In fact, I think he not only fleeced Chinese dissidents who are here in America that have escaped the CCP, I think Miles Guo also obtains intel on those people and sends it back to CCP. I think the guy is... is absolutely evil he's evil he's a double agent he's so easy he's he's not a double agent he's pretending to be anti-ccp when he's actually pro-ccp and he says so in his own words and he has and there's there's documents that were found in his his multi-million dollar manhattan penthouse uh that prove he is an agent of the ministry of state security for china so uh in this racketeering conspiracy charged, um, they have renamed. I'm just going to go over the differences between this super this superseding indictment and the last one. So, um, in this charge, they go over uh, his businesses are now labeled as Quok Enterprises. Okay, and they go over how th uh, his entire setup, Miles Guo's entire setup with these other people was an, an a criminal enterprise. Okay. The defendants and their co-conspirators, I would not be surprised to see more people indicted. I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't think Bannon's going to be one of them. They took advantage of Quok's prolific online presence and hundreds of thousands of online followers to solicit investments in various entities and programs by promising outsized financial returns and other benefits. The defendant and others known and unknown created and maintained several interrelated and overlapping entities together called the Quok Enterprise. Again, I'm just highlighting and going over what has been added to the superseding indictment that we went over um, almost a year ago. Quok Enterprise is labeled as a criminal organization in here. Millions of dollars of fraudulently obtained uh, that were fraudulently obtained were then laundered through over 500 accounts under 80 different entities or individuals, including entities that are part of Quok Enterprises. There is no way that any legitimate business moves money around the way Guo did. There's no, there's no, there's no sense to it. They concealed the source of these illegal funds by transferring them through over 500 accounts under 80 different names 
and they all all this money eventually winds up in the hands and the bank accounts in the safes of Guo, Jay, Wang, and their relatives. There's a new sentence here. They added a um, a note here that there was a four point four million dollar custom Bugatti, uh, who was given to one of uh, the co-conspirators' relative. They expanded Quack Enterprise to include uh, more in entities and individuals. All of this right here is new, which goes through the purpose of the enterprise. The purpose of the enterprise was enriching the members and associates of the enterprise, obtaining the money and property of victims, concealing and laundering the fraud proceeds, purchasing with fraud proceeds, expensive luxury items, vehicles, and property for the benefit of the defendants and their co-conspirators, promoting, increasing, preserving the standing of Quack Enterprise, entities that are part of Quack Enterprise, etc., etc., the means and methods by which the members of the associates of Quack Enterprises conducted their affairs included, but were not limited to the following. A, causing Quack Enterprise to amass significant assets through false and fraudulent misrepresentations. B, obstructing and circumventing law enforcement and civil regulatory authorities. C, obstructing and ignoring court orders. D, concealing fraud proceeds through, among other things, monetary transfers between entities. And E, harassing, threatening, and silencing critics. There are many, if you go and look it up, there are many, many, many stories of people who, uh, previous to these indictments, criticized Miles Guo and then had their social media accounts assaulted by Chinese bots and various age operatives. Just like CCP does. Uh, relevant persons, this section was had this sentence added, Quok directed others to create and maintain a variety of corporate entities that would come to make up Quok Enterprises, over which Quok was in charge. Um, more highlights that are new from here uh, that were added, and these specifically have to do with Wang. Previously, Yan Ping Wang, again, she is Guo's chief of staff, his closest, seemingly his closest ally, his assistant, um, who was arrested at um, with him and they tried to flip her originally <coughs> originally DOJ was trying to flip her against Guo but they were unsuccessful with that so she got added to this superseding indictment when she wouldn't do that um, Wang didn't have a formal position but she she um, she acted as if she did she exerted control over the accounts and these these various fraudulent businesses The next section of the indictment concerns some of the schemes. Those schemes, you may recognize some of the names of these things. GTV private placement, the farm loan program, G clubs. All of these things um, are unchanged except for Yvette Wang has now been added as a co-conspirator in those schemes. So obviously DOJ, they it seems to me like what happened was they held this. They probably went to her a year ago and said, look, they're, and they're trying to get her to flip against Guo. And they said, we know you were involved in all these schemes. We won't bring charges against you as part of your involvement in these schemes if you'll agree to testify against Miles Guo. She wouldn't cooperate, so now she's been indicted for her role in those schemes. Hence, she got three more charges, and hence the entire thing has been upgraded to a RICO case. They also added these um, aliases to Quok, 
um, Boss, Yuji, and Ming, and Y. I don't know if they already knew these aliases or if DOJ came across more evidence. Um, it could indicate, I mean, I'm not an expert, but it could indicate a thing. Either they weren't aware of these aliases when they first indicted or revealing that they had those aliases would have given away too much at the time. Um, but anyway, those aliases have been added. The Him Himalaya Exchange, you may have heard of that before if you've you know, followed this group of people. Um, completely fake cryptocurrency. This is, this is not... Uh, most of this is unchanged except for the, what I have highlighted here. The Himalaya Exchange included but was not limited to the following. And it goes on right here and lists their aliases. HCN and HDO, those were the names of the cryptos, okay? were not cryptocurrencies, even though they were marketed as such. As such, In particular, and contrary to the defendant's representations that HCN and HDO were cryptocurrencies, transactions using HCN and HDO were, unlike real cryptocurrencies, not recorded on a blockchain, which is an electronic, publicly accessible, decentralized ledger that uses cryptography to record cryptocurrency transactions. Instead of using a publicly accessible blockchain, Transactions in HCN and HDO were recorded in an internal database, which was not subject to public review. Then they have this new section here. This entire section is new, and it details that Miles Guo, after obtaining all of this money and like a bill over a billion dollars in fraudulently obtained money, which he didn't report on, and all these assets then goes on to file for bankruptcy in February 15, 2022. It's disgusting. So here are the counts. On the quick scan, I noticed that they added one more to Quok, two more to Jay, and three more to Wang. Um, but most significantly, this is now a RICO case. Beautiful, beautiful. Let me see how much time I have. Not much. Not much. Okay. And last, well, good thing this part will be short, even though I'm going to fail on my promise to go over Ed Mises filing. I'll try to make it up to you. <laughs> um, Trump's team, you remember how uh, Jack Smith in the DC case, which has been stayed, the schedule is suspended. There's not supposed to be anything happening in the DC case because it's in the court of appeals right now. Um, Jack Smith's team has continued to make filings in it, right? Now, Trump's team doesn't have to respond to these filings. But Jack Smith is being all like, well, you know, we're just going to go ahead and do the proposed jury questionnaire and we're going to give you some, uh, some more filings here. You don't have to respond right now, but we're just going to go ahead in the interest of speeding things along should the case be returned to this court. We're going to go ahead and continue making filings um, just so that we get a head start. So we're, we can get things right underway as soon as Jack Smith wins in the appeals court and wins at SCOTUS, one or the other, whatever. And Trump's team has come back and said, no, 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 no. This is not good. And Trump's team is asking for Judge Chutkin to order Jack Smith to show cause, meaning to give an explanation as to why they are violating the court stay order. And if their explanation is not sufficient, 
then Trump's team wants Judge Chukin to hold Jack Smith in contempt and to sanction him. Quote, the state order is clear, straightforward, and unambiguous. All substantive proceedings in this court are halted. Despite this clarity, the prosecutors began violating the stay almost immediately. That's true. It was like three days later, four days later, they continued to make filings. The prosecutors have cast these hallowed mandates aside to score cheap political points against President Trump on behalf of the Biden campaign. In doing so, the prosecutors have repeatedly and willfully disregarded the court's explicit instructions. Such malignant conduct undermines the integrity of this proceeding and warrants severe action. Now, it's hilarious, uh, this filing. It's I, I could almost say it's been written by Trump because it is kind of on that level. It's it's well it's like well written and I enjoyed reading it. We're not going to read the whole thing today, uh, but it is it is a good reading. I do kind of think that it's a bit over the top, uh, which is why I say it might have been written by Trump or at least Trump had input on it. Um, but I'm not sure what will happen with it. Because, one, I don't expect Chukin to exactly side with... I don't expect Chukin to sanction Jack Smith or hold him in contempt. I don't expect that. But I think it's possible that Judge Chukin might ask Jack Smith to show cause and then say, all right, well, with that, the court understands what the special counsel is attempting here, but still there is a stay order in place and all deadlines are suspended in this matter. And until this case is returned to this court, um, don't file anything. I could picture that happening. Um, I think it's fun. I honestly just think it's fun that this is going on. And like I said before, like Jack Smith filing on here, Trump and team don't have to do anything with it. They don't have to respond to it. They can just read it and be like, oh, well, that's what Jack Smith filed. They don't have to do anything. And there's no, uh, there's Trump's team. It's no bother to them, really. Uh, but I think they're being opportunist. I think Jack Smith is being opportunistic in making these filings, even though there's a stay. And I think Trump's team is being opportunistic in calling them out on it and asking for contempt and him to be contempt uh, held in contempt and to be sanctioned for it uh, because none of the reason I say that is because the kinds of filings he has made don't impose anything on Trump's team. If Jack Smith was making mo filing motions that would compel or force or require Trump to respond to them, then it would be a violation of the stay order. No doubt about it. But what Jack Smith has filed isn't that type of thing. It's just information. It's proposed this or um I think they did the the potential witness list, something like that. Like the filings, they put nothing on Trump. So I could see how you could you can see like it, it's kind of it could go either way. Um but the main thing is I just think it's fun. It's a fun it's a fun reading. So all right, folks, that's my show for today. I will clip out um, the segments of it and load them up on Rumble and playlist them in the clip section. Um, I still want to go over the Ed Meese thing and I want to compare Jack Smith's 
um, appointment, his order that appointed him to the orders appointing Mueller, Durham, her, and um, Weiss. So let's plan on that for Monday. Although if I just happen to get like an hour this weekend where I can sit and do the work, I might record the video and upload that video. But I, I think Ed Mises, uh, next week we have the DC appeals court hearing. And I think Ed Mises um, filing is, is definitely going to come up as to the legitimacy of the special counsel and whether it's a legally, it's an illegal office and Jack Smith is an illegal appointee in that office. And if he's not, then everything that has come out of the special counsel's office has to be thrown out. So um, I would, I just want to compare them so that everybody's aware of the differences because I don't think it's as straightforward as Smith is illegal and he, the whole office should be closed down and the case is thrown out. I don't think it's that simple and clear cut. There's a pretty interesting legal argument to have. So should be interesting. Y'all have a wonderful weekend. God bless all of you. Stay positive. And remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we're going to win this war. Thank you all very much. Thank you for supporting the show. Really appreciate it. And I'll see you later.